Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, listeners. Listeners, this is Jim Macklin sitting in for Neil Garfield, who has the night off. This is Thursday, November 5th, 2015. And tonight we have two guests, Charles Marshall and Mr. Dan Edstrom. Charles Marshall is a lawyer in California, covering most of the entirety of the state. And uh, California, as you may know, is home to much of the financial industry. He is concentrating his practice on foreclosure defense, and we'll be talking about issues in a very difficult state today. Along with Mr. Marshall is frequent guest Dan Edstrom. Dan is a senior uh, analyst for uh, Living Lies and GTC Honors, and most of you know Dan from past uh, uh, guest appearances. I am broadcasting live today from Lake Tahoe, California, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in South Florida. This show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954 495 9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Living Lies with 11 million visits is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and even student loans. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help homeowners and other consumers who may not be aware of the effect of the housing crisis and its uh, long-lasting effects uh, on our communities. We are succeeding as more and more lawyers across the country smell blood in the water and they realize that there is a winning strategy in both foreclosure defense and rescission. There is gold in all those so-called bank errors that Neil Garfield has said from the beginning were intentional. We know how they work. Long ago, Neil Garfield was one of them. Tonight, we have Charles Marshall. Uh, Mr. Marshall is a 20-year 
practicing attorney, 25 years, I believe, in the state of California. Charles, thanks for taking the time today, and welcome. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Good to be on the program. Great. And uh, also with us is Dan Edstrom. Dan is a complex financial transaction wizard. Dan does reside in California. Uh, in fact, Dan and I have been partners on a number of things for over eight years now. Dan, welcome, and thanks for taking the time. Welcome. And uh, uh, we've got quite a bit, I think, to go over tonight, some very interesting developments. We do. So I'm going to break right into this. Uh, this is going to be regarding rescission. As many of you listeners may know or perhaps may not know, uh, I have had a personal stake in the, uh, the TILA rescission forum for over six years now in actual courtroom battles with oppositions, attorneys, state, federal judges, and after exhaustive filings, thousands of records being introduced, admissions by the other side that the rescission was in fact made and received, and within the three-year time frame, I might add, we are still getting argument from the other side, who is nothing more than a loan servicing entity. As Neil has pointed out countless times here on the show, rescission under TILA is effective by operation of law once it is mailed. No court case need be filed to effect the rescission. This is an operation of law and acts similarly, similarly to a court order. Yet the courts are continuing to allow for the opposition to post argument and motions in defense of their position that somehow the federal law and the decision by the Supreme Court in the Jezinoski case do not apply to the loan servicing or banking industry. They are wrong. Charles and I are going to discuss a recently filed answer brief at the Ninth Circuit in this contested rescission case, which I've been a part of now for the better part of seven years. Uh, Charles, again, thanks for taking the time today to appear and weigh in on the procedure of what has taken place in this case. And for the listener's information, this case, again, is my personal case, and the records we'll be reading from and, and discussing are public knowledge. Mr. Marshall is going to be careful to not disturb the attorney-client privilege today when we discuss the meritless answer briefs that were filed in the case and were filed by parties who never had one single interest in the loan by operation of TILA. Charles, uh, you've had an opportunity to review the answer brief by one of the opposition litigants in this case, and uh, I'm assuming you have the brief in front of you now? Yes, I do. Great. I'm going to uh, take your attention to page two, and for the listeners, I'm going to read this. On page two of the answering brief at the Ninth Circuit, the opposition is required to uh, reiterate the statement of issues that are presented on the appeal, which I appealed. Obviously, I had a bad ruling that came down, and I appealed that ruling from the District Court into the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the statement reads, did the district court err in denying plaintiff appellant Macklin the motion to vacate prior judgment, finding that the bankruptcy court had jurisdiction 
to resolve a dispute regarding the interpretation and effect of Macklin's alleged notice of rescission that formed the basis of the bankruptcy court's orders and judgment. Now, I'm going to go back through this and point out to the listening audience what counsel is attempting to do. Counsel is attempting to weigh in and say that there's some form of resolution to a dispute regarding interpretation and effect of the notice of rescission that formed the basis of the bankruptcy court's orders and judgments. Charles, what do we know about the use of this terminology, how they're using it, and why they're doing what they're doing regarding interpretation of the uh, the rescission? Uh, well, what what we know about this, Jim, comes directly from the mouth of Justice Scalia when, in his opinion, in Jezinoski, and this has, you know, become a a kind of totem case for, uh, you know, a lot of attorneys like myself who are knee-deep in the uh, foreclosure defense and foreclosure plaintiff's cases, particularly in California, because Jezinoski comes out of California. And what Scalia held in Jezinoski is that this is not an issue about interpretation of, you know, the underlying documents that, you know, were were put by the borrower to advance the rescission. And this is not about whether the rescission was even timely, even though clearly the rescission was timely here. I mean, the defendant's own answering brief establishes that Jim did his rescission well within the three-year time period, and yet they didn't do the things that Scalia required them to do. One of those critical uh, things that was required was to file an action within 20 days of the rescission. They did not do that. They were tasked under the TILA statute related to rescission to file a lawsuit to vindicate their position within 20 days of any rescission against them. Instead, what they did, and unfortunately before Jezinoski, this was the you know kind of standard operating procedure in this area. What they did was just let it all float along. They sent Mr. Macklin, you know, a kind of obtuse letter making it sound like his rescission wasn't clear, and his rescission was clear enough. I mean, that's the the aspect of a Scalia decision that every borrower should take heart in. You don't have to have some elaborate or absolutely crystal clear uh, representation about the rescission when you do the rescinding. All you need to do is send in a written letter could be even on a napkin for that matter, to the effect that you're rescinding your loan. If you want to add additional verbiage, you can. If you don't add additional verbiage, that's okay. Mr. Macklin's rescission letter had additional verbiage, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he rescinded, and the letter is clear that he was rescinding within that letter. So that's the operative document, and that's how these cases, I believe, are going to be interpreted 
uh, in the courts. And look, this is all being litigated now. I'm litigating some of these cases myself here in California. So the Scalia position, just to recap, is that the lender, you know, the, the, the legal entity subject to the rescission or a successor in interest, <laughs> purported, as we know, these successors are rarely bona fide. They must file the lawsuit. They would have had to have filed the lawsuit within 20 days. That time frame has already been blown. So our goal here is to simply nail them to the wall on the Chesanowski decision, and I think we're well positioned to do that. Right, and and you touched on a point that really hits at home is that in the implementing regulation under TILA, which is from back in 1968, it says that all that is required is for the borrower to manifest an intent to rescind. The simple phrase, I hereby rescind, the above-described transaction and then give a loan number and a loan amount, uh, should be more than sufficient to satisfy the implementing regulations verbiage that, that is used. This is a consumer-friendly statute that was born out of the abuses that the consumers were getting back in the 60s and 70s. And it was it was quite abusive, which is why Congress came in and made it really simple. And what's really interesting is that this is a non-judicial approach, much like the non-judicial foreclosure statutes in California that these loan servicers seem to relish. When the shoe is on the other foot, they don't like the non-judicial aspects of the uh, truth and lending rescission uh, process. I'm going to move down, and, and Dan, I want to call your attention to page three. Um, it is the last paragraph on the page. And uh, for the listeners, this brief is they're, they're trying to set the court up in a really a, a logical fallacy, and I'm going to have Dan explain that. But, Dan, I want to call your attention to the sentence that says, On or about February 12, 2009, Appellant sent a letter entitled Notice of Rescission to AHL, yada, 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 the trustee under the deed of trust. This letter is at the heart of the appeal. Accordingly, its relevant language is quoted below. And they give a quote from part of the rescission letter. What they fail to quote is the opening sentence, which is interesting in pleading, because the opening sentence in the letter that I wrote says, I hereby rescind the above transactions and identified both of the loans that were rescinded. They failed to put that in. The very next paragraph, after the arbitrary language that they put in, says that the lender responded on March 31st. So let's recap this. They received the letter on February 12th, as they just admitted, and then they just admitted that the lender responded disputing the legitimacy of the claimed rescission and the accuracy of appellant's contention that rescission occurred upon the unilateral pronouncement of same. They instructed Macklin to respond in a timely manner with additional information if he truly intended to affect the rescission. Dan, I don't even need to light you up for this. Go ahead and, and tell the listeners what admissions you have in here, and what's horribly wrong about this pleading. Did I lose you, Dan? Yeah, I said I couldn't um, follow everything that you there just you said, but it sounds like there are 
um, putting restrictions into the rescission that aren't in the statute. Right. And I think one of the more pertinent parts is they admit they received a letter on February 12th, and they admit that they responded on March 31st. Obviously, within the statute, they had a time frame. What did they just admit? Oh, they just admit, admitted that they didn't respond in the time frame. Right. They didn't file an action. They sent a right. letter in argument. And if uh, if you're aware or if any listener is aware out there um, of any of the dispute argument that's available under the statute, we'd like to see it. Because in reviewing the statute, there is no allowance for dispute or argument. There is only allowance for a series of events to occur, which would be, A, they cancel the security, B, they publicly notice the cancellation of that security, C, they return all monies associated with the transaction, including down payments, fees paid in closing, every monthly payment that's been made, and then uh, to return all property, which would include the promissory note because that is considered property under the law. Or they can file an action. Those are the choices under the Truth in Lending Rescission Statute. There are no other choices. There's no language that says that they can send back a letter and argue, which is what they always do, or they just ignore it. So, Dan... Uh, uh, the next paragraph on, on page four says that Macklin did not offer to tender or tender the amounts that were undisputedly due on the loan. The property was sold at foreclosure in 2009, yada, yada, yada. What's wrong with that sentence? The What was the first part again? Macklin did not respond to AHL and Windsor, which are the, the lenders. Did Macklin have a duty right. to respond to their? Right, you had you had no uh, duty to respond to that because they either had to return the money or file an action, and they chose not to. <clears throat> and in reality, that's worked for them uh, for quite a long time because of the cloud on title that remains. Right, once once the homeowner rescinds, because the homeowner then has to go take an action in order to get something done, but if he doesn't, that doesn't preclude them. So you've got the, the, void, the void note and mortgage, but the mortgage remains on the title until it gets removed by a court action. So they can foreclose non-judicially like they did in your case because of the presumptions. Now, here we are 10 months after the Jezinoski decision, and the opposition spills ink in this answer and says, appellant did not offer to tender or tender the amounts undisputedly due under a truth in lending rescission. Is there any explanation that you can offer as to why, after a unanimous Supreme Court said that tender was not required to affect rescission, do you know why they would even put this in? Any, any comment uh, from you, Dan, as to why this is put in? Well, sure. It's been the argument they've been using for a long time, and it's going to take quite a bit for them to not use that argument. Right. I believe that you're 100% correct. I think they're trying to turn the stomachs of the court, and they want the court to have to hold their nose 
uh, at the statute. Then it says the property was sold at foreclosure in 2009. And, Charles, I'm going to direct this at you. As you know, that is obviously a legally conclusive statement that flies in the face of truth and lending rescission for the matter uh, that if truth and lending and, re and rescission uh, is effective by operation of law upon mailing, how could the property be sold at foreclosure using the deed of trust as the contract? Well, precisely, Jim. It couldn't have legally been done, and they did violate the law in bringing that property to sale in December of 2009. And the beauty of the Jasinoski decision is that it sets the table, you know, for our side, the borrower's side, to bring causes of action based not only on rescission, but other, first of all, independently worked up causes of action where you have all the assignment and other problematic, you know, derivative events that made these loans essentially uh, unserviceable and unmanageable. And in this particular case, because of a very, you know, patently valid rescission that was effected in a timely way, the lenders failing to sue within 20 days of that rescission is fatal. So clearly, uh, their non-judicial foreclosure, you know, what, what ended up being approximately uh, four to six months later is, is patently illegal, and one could add wrongful foreclosure and other causes of action related to that. And, Charles, let's, let's follow up on that. Based on the... The tenor of the let, let's look at the in, the entirety of their action in answering because we've talked about the plausibility and possibility of of submitting a motion to strike the entire answer and the grounds for that motion to strike and we're not sure if we're going to do it or not or if we're just going to take it up in the reply brief but the grounds for the striking of that motion would certainly settle in the operation of law. Listen, this party cannot argue the merits of a rescission at this point in time. It's against the law. And so we, we've we talked about the possibility of, of doing a motion to strike. Does it have merit, or do we think that we we handle this by a reply brief? Because, as you know, in, in, the, in the Ninth Circuit and in most uh, uh, federal courts of appeal, motions to strike are, are not looked upon very favorably, although they can be effective. What do you think? Uh, I think we could go, we could go both routes. I think we could put forward a motion to strike because essentially their brief is non-responsive, but we could also reply point by point and break down why the specific arguments they put forward are illegitimate, regardless of the fact that they're outside of the, the legal framework they need to to be within. For responding, in other words, we would be arguing in the alternative. And just to let all the listeners know, Jim and I and Dan work up a lot of our cases together, and we use arguments in the alternative on a regular basis because it's a very effective way of pleading. Because sometimes judges will sign off on one line of defense or attack, but reject the other one 
but one of the lines of attack goes through, or one of the lines of defense goes through, and that's a big deal in these cases. It means the cases live for another day, and in the case of this appeal, it means that it will move forward. So that's a big deal as well. Right, right. And and Dan, I'm going to direct one at you because there's an uh, there's an, another overall theme that that Neil has touched on, and he and I have discussed this, and I think it's a very strong point of contention. If rescission is effective by operation of law and the deed is voided upon that rescission, the the contract is void, does standing come into play in this particular part of the uh, procedure? And if standing comes into play, does the jurisdiction of the court come into play? Well, yeah, the, the standing would come into play because of what the servicer or the bank is alleging for their relief. They're still standing on the documents that they allegedly hold in their hand, which is a note and a security instrument. And we know from a rescission that by operation of law, those are void, but they still wave them around as if, you know, as if nothing happened. And so now looking at this, uh, this particular case, and this is going to come to, to a head fairly quickly because there's there's two parallel cases running. One is going to be uh, heard on op- uh, oral argument on December 2nd, uh, funny enough, the same day as the Ivanova case is heard at California Supreme Court, which is on a, a, a different uh, issue. And then the final Ninth Circuit case will be heard uh, on oral argument sometime in January is, is what the calendar looks like. Um, Charles, as kind of a last um, uh, discussion about what the plans are, the, the first part of this, because there's two separate cases here, there's a bankruptcy case that was appealed to the district court instead of the appellate panel for the bankruptcy court, and then there's a USDC case that was appealed. They they determined that the cases were not related, even though both cases are directly on point for TILA rescission. So we've got one case being heard on December 2nd. The follow-up case will be heard sometime in January. Um, when the opposition stands up to make its argument uh, in the appeal, what would be our position uh, to the court as soon as the, the other side stands up? Well, one of the things we're going to emphasize is just what we've been talking about during this broadcast. Their remedy was to sue within 20 days. They didn't do that. Your effectuation of killer rescission involved your only using some version of what we could even call magical words, I rescind. You clearly did that within your first sentence, And they're taking that completely out of context to pull that out of what they put in their answering brief is massively bad faith. It's almost to the point, frankly, where it's actionable, meaning they could be subject to some sort of legal sanction within the professional legal community in California because they've completely taken out of context the operative legal effect of the wording that they're referencing. 
And Scalia makes it perfectly clear. You say something like, I rescind, that's all you, the borrower, needs needs to say. So we are set up to really hammer this home. I mean, frankly, I thought that they, as an answering defendant, might focus on the claim preclusion aspect. Now, we won't get into that for the purposes of this radio show. We don't have time for that right now. They could have played that angle, but instead they went right to the heart of what this case is about otherwise. I think they bit off more than they can absolutely chew, and I think uh, they're going to have a legal system rain down on them because of it. Well, uh, we are near the end of our time. Uh, Charles, if you would, please give a quick phone number if people want to get in touch or uh, an Internet address, uh, or Dan will do that. Charles, give a number, please, quickly. Yeah, absolutely. The best number to reach us all at is 619-807-2628. That's 619-807-2628. And we are done. Thank you guys both. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.